0: Doc was like, T.A., come here. He rewinded the tape. And he told me, he was like, yo, look at this. You see see who shot the first shot of the game? I looked at the film. I said, I shot the first shot of the game. And he looked looked down uh, at at the court. And he said, you see that guy over there? That's Paul Pierce. He get paid the big bucks. That mean if you wanna play on this court, you need to be doing everything he not doing. <laughs> so that's playing defense, dabbing for loose ball, taking charges, and, and being at cause of havoc on the um defensive end. And if you gotta shoot and make sure the clock is under four. You get what I'm saying? So I knew right then, like, oh, I don't get no clear outs. <laughs> we ain't running no one uh two ISO screen, flex for (laughs) T.A., none of those type of options are for me. And it was right then and there, like the got to come.
1: That was Tony Allen learning early on that his role would be changing with the Celtics. That and a ton of amazing NBA stories of Tony Allen. We'll do an open on the Lakers win. And Jeff Garland, life with Curb and life as a comedian. It's all coming up next. It's the Ryan Racilla podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18-plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Buy. It's Wonder Water. So I was wondering what made Buy so great. And it's actually pretty simple. Buy has antioxidants, electrolytes, and no artificial sweeteners. And the flavors are delicious. For me, it has to be Bi Zambia Bing Cherry. So for flavorful hydration, choose buy. It's Wonder Water. Learn more about buy and discover all of the exotic, bold flavors at drinkby.com. Okay, the Lakers are your seven seed. Golden State has one more game to get back in uh, after... Losing to the Lakers. It was all Golden State early in the first half. We're going to run through all of this stuff. Um, So timeline of the game and then kind of where we're at. And Shout out to the Grizz for their win against San Antonio. I'm not going to spend any time on that. Um, and I'm just thrilled I don't have to watch San Antonio anymore. I actually I will spend a few seconds on it. It's shocking that when you think of San Antonio basketball, and granted I'm not saying this year, but when you think of who they are, and what made them great, and for all of all of the movement and all of the people that could depend on each other, it was basically Rudy Gay and DeMar DeRozan isos on the most important possessions of a San Antonio Spurs season for about two and a half minutes. And I was like, this is all they're doing right now. And there was a Dejounte Murray turnover in there, but however. Congrats to them for fighting back, uh, but they're out. and We don't have to watch the Spurs anymore. All right, Warriors-Lakers. This is about LeBron and how he looked at the start, and it didn't look great, but now that we have the full game, we realize, okay, was he hurt? Because we had some boots on the ground there reporting LeBron didn't look the same. I looked at one play. Bazemore hit that early, early three. Like I'm, I think it might have made it 7-2. It was that early in the possession, and LeBron had Bazemore. And LeBron didn't even, not only did he not contest, he didn't even, like, he didn't even bother. He just went to the glass to see if it was coming off. And I was like, okay, I think he's taking his time in this game. Uh, And despite Curry's struggles, he was two for six in the first quarter. LeBron didn't look good either. When Steph could get by the double team, because you want to talk about a defensive strategy, the entire Lakers defensive strategy with added intensity in the second half was to try to find a way to slow Steph down by bringing that double out, meeting him as far as they could. And, you know, against that double, Steph is going to figure it out at some point. But when it's a double with size like Anthony Davis later on, I mean, it's just kind of, it's just a lot to deal with, even if you know that it's coming. Uh, if Steph could turn the corner, though, that would open up things for other players. So it's 55-42 at the half. We don't know what to make of LeBron. Dennis Schroeder's a disaster. Anthony Davis is a mess. They're 4 of 23 combined for 14% from the floor, which actually ended up being the worst shooting half for those three combined in any half of a game this season. 55-42. We come out, Mark Jackson gives his halftime speech, which was incredible in what happened. I would tell these guys, you are winners. You are the Los Angeles Lakers. Relax, exhale, go out there, do your job. Take care. Of your business. And Van Gundy's like, yeah, I'd say the opposite. I'd be like, You're too relaxed. Do something. Which I just was at home. Whenever I hear the comp there, I just I I couldn't stop laughing. Turnovers, turnovers, turnovers. Golden State, if you're waking up today, you're gonna be kicking yourself because the turnover issue was the issue. That's what happened in this game. Golden State starts not only facing a more intense defense, a more um engaged closeout from guys like Anthony Davis up on Draymond Green. It was eight Golden State turnovers in the third quarter. That was the issue. Now, whenever Steph got Caruso, you know, it was it was kind of mixed results. Like Caruso's working his ass off, but if he could get an angle on Caruso, there's a couple times where Caruso was playing him on the side and he just sent him right to the rim and, and Steph had clear layups because There's just some bad rotations in there. But those turnovers led to easy buckets. There was one playoff, a turnover where it was was actually later on where Caruso did get Curry. He stuck his hand in there, timed the dribble perfectly, ends up going off of Curry. That was kind of the turnover that cost Golden State a better chance in this one. And then off of that, we're talking an inbound, not a turnover still in play, an inbound off the turnover. And then Golden State's completely scattered defensively. They had to foul Anthony Davis. And then guess what? Davis played better. LeBron played better. Going back to that third quarter, it looked like the Lakers are still trying to figure out these Andre Drummond minutes. He had three straight possessions where, look, if you want to put Andre Drummond out there to clean up a rebound and score, fine. You want to throw him a lob after some help comes away from him and then you're just going to make him pay, fine. But he had three possessions, I think, in a row there in the third quarter, where I think one, he ended up with the ball, but it was still very early in the shot clock. And the other two times he had the ball were by design. You know, like, okay, so if Anthony Davis is out there with Drummond, this is a choice that you're making, and it's a bad choice. And the right choice was Drummond, I don't think, ever came back onto the floor after that really bad stretch. So to start the fourth quarter here, as the Lakers outscored Golden State 35-24 in the third... The Lakers started with LeBron and Anthony Davis and if you're a Lakers fan, you know that that's not always the case because when we look at fourth quarter patterns and minute patterns for players in general, everybody's kind of different with their fourth quarters. I mean or their minutes in general. Steph's usually a 12 minutes to start and then off for 6 minutes, back in for 6 minutes, entire third quarter and then he doesn't come in. And they've been going back to when they were killing it with everybody else. Steph comes back in at the six-minute mark. LeBron is different in that he'll start the fourth. He'll get a fourth-quarter rest And then he'll come back in to close it. They do that with Zion, too. They did it with Zion. Like, I wonder if that's a new thing where guys are tracking this stuff with incredible data, medical stuff, where it's like, actually, when we monitor all of these things with you, you're at your peak if you get these quick bursts, and then you can play more of the fourth quarter this way. I don't know. I remember back with Durant and Westbrook, they used to do a deal where they'd play the entire first quarter together, and then they'd overlap at two minutes, I think, or so into the second quarter. Now, don't hold me to all of this because I know it can kind of change a little bit here or there, but like Westbrook and Durant never wanted to be split. Bigs are different. Bigs will be taken out maybe at the seven or eight minute mark of the first quarter, knowing that you want them more on the back end. Um, LeBron will play an entire first quarter and then carry over into the second quarter, hoping to make up the rest somewhere else. So, you know, the bigs are going to play less minutes. The wings are going to play a little bit more. All the minute obsession that we've seen. But there's usually a very clear pattern with the best players on these teams. And so for this game, in particular, because there was so much on the line, the Lakers come back in with LeBron AD. AD immediately gets it done. You hear the announcer saying, all right, they're going to get Draymond in here to match all of the Anthony Davis minutes. Davis played 42 minutes. Green played 41 minutes. And you could argue, I think even in that one minute, that was that time at that fourth quarter where there was a few possessions where Green wasn't in. I think there are times where coaches are like, I just want to steal a minute or two. And then you realize immediately, I'm not even going to be able to do that. And if I have the guy at the scores table, we don't have a whistle. I could lose a few more minutes in this game. The infamous Zion Williamson standing at the scores table, New Orleans Pelicans game, like forever during a stretch, I think of overtime because they started an overtime without him. Anyway, now I'm just getting too far off the rails. So that's the whole fourth quarter stuff. And then Steph, who I said comes in primarily around six minute mark in fourth quarters for most of his career, he comes in at ten twenty three because they know they got to figure this thing out. Um, Steph had one field goal attempt in the last three oh eight. This was the blueprint of a team designing everything defensively to stop one person, and they won. And Steph actually still had thirty seven points, seven boards, three assists, six and nine from the three point line. So the entire system was to stop him, and he had 37. The problem is that Wiggins had early moments, couldn't hit from outside. Draymond had zero points, zero for five. Or excuse me, he had two points over five from the floor. He did hit a couple free throws. And then LeBron hits just an absurd, absurd three that's kind of going to be on the reel of all-time moments. And yeah, we can laugh. and It's the Lakers and the standard. This is below them in the playing game. It's just a ridiculous shot. It's a ridiculous shot. Steph looks at him like, you'd be kidding me. And LeBron deserves all the credit in the world for that one because LeBron... Bad shooting numbers, what the hell's going on? I think if there were something wrong with him moments, I think his pace was just off. I think he was way too comfortable, and then I felt like he and both Davis did turn it on a little bit later. Um, Schroeder was was killing them. This game, again, is all about turnovers. Um, I thought the rebounding thing would be an issue. The Lakers out-rebounded him by 59 through the regular season, and the last time the Warriors beat him, I think, was back in January anyway, and then lost the next two, but I'd have to look at like who played again and all that stuff. 20 turnovers to 11 turnovers. That's it. Golden State had 20. Lakers had 11. Those extra turnovers mean extra possessions. And you look at the box score and look at that, even though Golden State shot it really well from three, 44%, 15 to 34, the Lakers had 91 shots for the game compared to 83 shots for Golden State. And that was it. All right, the last little thing I'll add about this is it's never going to change because it's almost over LeBron's career. But when he goes up and is trying to sell the flagrant and the flagrants are judged basically on the landing, like we don't review stuff if a guy lands all right. Draymond got his hands up in LeBron's face and, you know, he hit his eye and it wasn't malicious and it actually wasn't called a flagrant one, which I'm always shocked now when it isn't a flagrant one. And then I was joking when I tweeted out the eye game. It got 3000 likes. It should have gotten zero. I I was, you know, I don't, I guess I, I look at it this way. As great as LeBron is, it's just really fucking annoying, man. It just is. And if you're the greatest player easily of your generation and arguably, you know, in the conversation of the greatest players of all time, I think it's just kind of weird. But I think it's a weird thing where it's not even about selling. I don't even think he knows that he can, that he's doing it. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that anybody would ever say like, cause if I were ever like, oh man, that was kind of lame. Like I exaggerated that a little bit. He doesn't have that in him. There's the hand brace in the NBA finals. And we were like, "What's well, your hands broken? What's going on? And then he's like, I had to shoot at the rim in the middle. Like, I'm sure your eye was watery a little bit. It sucks to get poked in the eye, but he has this weird, he's had it forever. The exaggeration, the, it's not just selling calls the, I remember the first time I was on the ESPN. When I brought it up with Van Pelt, like 10 years ago, I'm like, why does he do the Jersey to check for blood move all the time? Like he'd dap his jersey in his eyebrow and like look to see if there was blood there. There's never blood there. Maybe once. Um, I've seen him turn his ankle live, leave, go to the locker room, come back, and then dunk off the same ankle 30 seconds later. It's just a weird element of him that doesn't mean anything for his legacy. I just think it's weird that if you're the badass and you're the best player in the league, you think you just want to stop doing that at some point. But he's never going to stop. So me pretending it's going to happen is even a bigger farce than him exaggerating calls. So Rudy, I I don't even want to ask because I feel guilty as even doing a two minutes on that because I already know where this is going to go. You and I know each other really well. The guy hits an absurd thirty foot longest shot he's made all year long. They win it. They got Phoenix. They're a great match. Like that's exactly who the Lakers should want in the first round. Although I got to admit, like imagine if you were Utah going, are you serious? We're going to get the Lakers in the one eight after all of this. Or if you're the Clippers going, yeah, this plan work is great. Now we're going to get him in the second round if we get out of the first. But I I don't know. I don't want to be negative. I know I'm. I'm deemed negative at times. I think I'm more of like, hey, I'm pointing out stuff that I just don't think enough people are pointing out with the LeBron thing now. Everybody's on this now. So I don't know. I don't even want to tee you up here because then I'm afraid we're going to turn it into negativity after this guy just made this absurd shot, which I think we've given him most of his praise. I just don't want to overdo it here.
2: No, but I think that's the annoying part is that that was an incredibly dramatic moment. It was unbelievable. The, the that shot is you're right. It's, it's going to go down in the highlight reel of LeBron's career. There doesn't need to be any added drama, but it always seems like LeBron is always trying to add more drama to a situation that doesn't need any more drama. Like the stakes were already high. And then he says, you know, oh, you know, I, I saw three rims and I shot at the middle. It just you don't need to add that. It was already unbelievable, you know, and I, it comes off as kind of it just comes off as kind of corny. And I, and I hate that it takes away from the shot. Like, I'm annoyed that it takes away from the shot because it shouldn't. It was unreal. And here we are talking about, you know, whether or not he was seeing three rims and whether or not that it was actually like a legitimate injury or need to wear an eye patch, which he mentioned in the game. I the whole thing. I just think is so I just hate that it takes away from the shot itself.
1: It's weird. It's a weird part of the personality. I don't know how else to I just but don't right. think anybody can ever say anything to him. I don't think like that.
2: That's the do thing. you think.
1: Maverick Carter would ever say, like, hey, dude. Like, you probably weren't blind. Or do they go, awesome, man. Can't believe you did it. Can't believe you could barely see. I don't know. It's weird.
2: Well, well, you always talk about this. Like, his... A lot of the stuff that he does is calculated, right? So I assume his that the team is probably saying, you know, like the MVP thing, where him him calling Steph the MVP. Everyone said, oh, that's because he's trying to recruit Steph to join the Lakers in a couple of years. Like, there's always like that's exactly why he does it. Yeah, there's there's thing in the back of all clutches minds that they have to constantly be playing something up or playing up the dramatics or you know trying to sell something, and that's that's kind of what I thought was happening last night. And it's a bummer because I'd rather be talking about the shot and how amazing it was than talking about whether or not he was seeing three right. rims.
1: So we'll stop there because we did talk about the shot enough because it's it's you know you sit there and be like oh what an amazing amazing win they were favored they should have beaten golden state okay they're better than golden state you know when you watch golden state play defensively their numbers are really really good but like i remember you know even last night when i'm thinking about utah whatever and a couple of buddies texted me and be like wouldn't you want the lakers right now if you're utah instead of golden state i'm like actually no no <laughs> i'm not gonna let 24 bad fucking minutes of shooting decide now that i'm from the jazz be like, you know give me the lakers The team of Anthony Davis and LeBron, yeah, I'll play them. I'd rather them. I mean, look, I I love Steph as much as anybody right now, but (laughs) there's no comparison. There's no comparison between talent-wise who you would or wouldn't want to play over seven games. Let's talk to Tony Allen. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call? Old school guy probably should call. It's like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time, said, do you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand it's all in front of me, all done. I do not even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options, to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Tony Allen, 14 seasons in the NBA. One of the great defensive players of his generation. Very connected to the Memphis community uh, after his time there with the team. What is it about Memphis, Tony? Like I, I know I see you with the media stuff with Chris Vernon, one of our partners here at Ringer. Um, what's it been like for you to stay in a city like that, knowing you're from Chicago and you had been around the league?
0: Uh, man, I guess it's the Southern hospitality, you know, they, they welcome me, me with, you know, uh, just my time being there. I fell in love with the city, uh, worked so hard for the organization, loved the organization, never had no bad blood with the organization. Um, and uh, I just thought, you know, when I came down here with my blue collar swagger, you know, my green grind mode, I think, I think the city embraced me with that. I think it was like with Memphis, ain't no shortcut in Memphis. It's either go 110% or go home. And I think it meshed well with my style of play. And uh, just things of that nature.
1: It really was perfect. I mean, you know, the whole grit and grind thing, and people could talk about it, But, like, if it was real. It was real for you guys. And there was just something about it where, you know, there might have been more talented teams, uh, clearly. But, like, those teams you guys had, like, they were a tough out. They were always tough. I remember, I think we had Chauncey Billups in studio when you guys were up 2-1 on Golden State. And he was like, man, he's like, I think Memphis got him. And then, look, I mean, Golden State's Golden State. And they pull out that series. But, but there was a real identity and a real culture. I think other teams pretend they have it, hope to have it. But you guys had it. How did you have it?
0: Oh, man, specifically that year, too. Just to, just to put a few more wings on that, on that sauce, you just said, I got hurt that, that year. I pulled my hamstring. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the, the series probably would have looked with a little different, had I not been hurt, but you got to give credit to those guys. And uh, I just thought we was fearless. We all uh, had a, a mutual respect for one another. Uh, we all, we, we, me, Zach, uh, Mike, Mark. We all held each other accountable. Uh, and one thing for sure, too was certain: we all wanted to win. You know, we was a uh, we was a whole bunch of guys like that that kind of like that counted out. You know what I mean? And uh, we just made it our business to you know. Um, make the grand house our, our place of a, a business where you don't come play it. and uh, Or you don't come with your A game, man. You know, you got to come with it, you know. And uh, I think we, we, we made sure guys got their rest. We made sure we, we was tuned in when there was games that, you know, we needed to win. And I think that's why our veteran leadership kicked in. That You know, we took care of business on teams that, you know, we were supposed to be. But all the teams that, you know, they had us losing to or, you know, projected to lose to. I think those were the games I think we took personal, And we did that throughout the season. And, uh, and before you know it, it was just a grit and grind, we don't bluff type movement. Did you feel like some
1: teams, even though they thought they were better than you, be like, I don't know if afraid is the right answer. You know, <laughs> afraid isn't, you know, like you guys are all pro athletes, but
0: yeah. We allergic to that
1: word.
0: <laughs> that word, afraid. We don't feel nobody. And that's, that was the thing. Like, some of your greatest superstars are coming there. And, and and think like, all right, we just just Memphis. We'll get this when we really got the big game, the next game. You know, they, we, we changed that perspective of your biggest superstar. Now when your biggest superstar come in Memphis, either he hurt or he know he got a long night. You get what I'm saying? And that was just a, 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 a example of what Coach Hollins and Coach Jager and, you know, uh, the coaches that, you know, had got a chance to coach us throughout the years, you know, they got that from our players. Uh, we we all in, you know what I'm saying? One, one no one foot out, one foot in, you know, everybody was all in. It was times, it was time we tweaked, we tweaked uh, lineups, you know, certain guys had to sacrifice, myself, Zach Randolph, you know, and it was, and we didn't pout, we didn't, you know, it was for the better of the team, you know, and uh, I think when you got guys just buying in, it's easy to coach, you know, you can win a little more. <laughs>
1: You would study guys. You know, I, I read about how you would watch videos of Kobe over and over and over again. Um, Who who did you think? I, I, everybody always asks you, like, who is your toughest? I know the answer is Kobe. Who was a guy you knew was like, shit, I don't want to deal with Tony Allen tonight?
0: Yo, 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 yo. I'm, I, I've i been waiting on somebody to ask me that again because ain't nobody asked me that. Well, everybody been telling me who I am. You know what I'm saying? So it's funny you say that, man, but uh, I got to shine some light on, on Flash. On Flash, I got I to got shine some light on Flash, you know. Uh, although Kobe is Kobe, you know, big respect to Kobe. But I just think when I used to go against my hometown, uh, you know, co-worker D-Wade at the time, good brother, man, too, uh, I thought he was always trying to go in my head. And I thought it was my duty to try to stop him. And boy, was he tough. He get to that line. He slags. He wasn't just your typical superstar where he just catch it in the post or catch it on the wing and just go to work. You know, he used the pick and roll. Sometimes he'll uh, be in the offense. If he can't get his shot going off the pull-up, backdoor cuts. You got to be aware of a superstar staying this active. Watching the um offensive rebound, you might come tip dunk. You get what I'm saying? Uh, and I thought like every time that I got a chance to play, he performed. And uh, it was difficult. I don't know the numbers. I ain't no analytical guy. I told you I grit and grind, but I know for a fact, if I could look at the numbers for sure, Dwayne du- Wade, man, he, he, used to, he used to give me fits, man. And I thought it was, it was real, uh, it was like a, a real a great feeling when we sent them out, what that was, 2010. I think it was, we went through Wade, LeBron, Vince, and lost the code that year. I'm not, I think that was 2010. Don't give me telling the story. Yeah, Boston,
1: yeah. the rematch with Lakers, 2010.
0: Yeah. yo, yeah, I think we had to go to Miami first. Yeah. And, man, the first game, Dwyane Wade put up like 44. I don't know the first game, second game, third. I don't know. But whichever one of them games, I was just like, I remember myself saying this thing, man, why we just can't sweep them and get this guy out the way. And I just remember times like that with Flash. So if I had to give anybody – any praise on who gave me fits it's the hometown kid, shut down doing way yeah
1: you you gave us the the humble answer on that one because you added somebody else to the resume that uh that that was tough you know the thing about wade that i always noticed and i was talking with a, a coach about this recently on the screen on the offensive player right so the offensive player who turns down the screen more often than not, we're like defensive concepts will say like, we want you to actually use the screen so then we can kind of dictate where you're going. Wade used to turn it down all day, right? Like that was his big thing. Like he always was turning the screen the re- down. Yeah.
0: Exactly. He would just. It was like, I, you get set up with that nine times out of 10, you putting pressure on your big man. Cause he going upstairs to dunk. So it was like, man, be ready for the rejection. That was one of the, that was one of the biggest, like every coach you- like Doc, or like the um, player personnel coaches, they the first thing they tell him, T.A., he's going to reject the pick and roll. Going to reject it. And he always get the wind up like he about to gump, and then he reject it. But you got to be fearful of your big. If your big not right there in the blue, depending side, pick and roll, because that's normally when he do it. If they not in that blue, and blue is when the big, obviously, is in the coverings, just in case you get beat, it's going to hurt you, man. It's going to definitely hurt you.
1: This young team is fun. Um, they get to win against San Antonio. It wasn't easy after what looked like an easy start. Not a surprise. Give me your scouting report. Give me the Tony Allen, no bullshit, scouting report on the Memphis Grizzlies.
0: Oh, man. Well, you know, obviously, we gotta, you got to let your friend Ricky of the Year, you know, and John Moran. Obviously, um, sky's the limit for his career. Um, I just like the fact that, you know, they uh, they changing, they make they they call themselves the new generation, you know. Um Greer's next generation, they still G and G, so you know, it all go well. But I have to tell you, man, uh that's a group of guys, man, that play together, that's following under Coach Taylor, you know, um wisdom and everything, his knowledge on the court. But uh guys like uh Jaron Jackson being back is a big huge is a huge fit for those guys, you know. Somebody that could spread the floor, of the pick and roll. You know, obviously we had big rollers and athletic rollers in Clark uh, and Valatunas. You know, that that that's a that's a lane for the Grizzlies when they go one five. But I would have to say, man, all this young experience and and, and this light el- this light el- that we getting on the Grizzlies now, the sky's the limit, man. Uh, I like each guy on the team, man. Uh, Dylan Brooks has shown that, you know, he can play both ends of the court, uh, lock up and get buckets. I like that aspect in, in, for the Grizzlies. Uh, d Melton, he shows signs of Tony Allen, you know, playing the passing lanes, getting out there causing havoc in, in, in the team's offense. Clark, obviously, you know, he's he, he, he a rim runner. Every team needs a rim runner. And I just think experience is what they're missing right now. These, these type games, you know, I think it's going to put them in a position where we need to be far. We need to be playing in a big stage. So it's a young team, man. They under a great coach, uh, Coach Taylor, and uh, I think, uh, I think that you know, sky's the limit for them, man. You know, it's early. I can't. They're young, man. You know, on I'm like I'm from the old school, and a lot of people in my era, you know they was kind of tough on the young guys. Like, it was kind of tough for me being young. And I think with this generation, they just letting them guys just play. And I think they can only grow, be, you know, growth can come from that.
1: Let's go back to that start for you because your first round pick, you come into the league 4 And, you know, your third year, you actually score like 11 points a game, which is the highest for your career. You get more shots, you get to the free throw line more. And <laughs> I, I know I've heard you talk about your transition of of whether you're at Oklahoma State being like, look, I'm here to get buckets. Like, what's what's the problem? How hard was that transformation for you? Because I think a lot of young NBA guys come in feeling like, okay, now that I'm out of college, now I'm going to start, start showing everybody how much I can score. It doesn't always work out that way.
0: No, it was a real rude awakening. Um, I think I got to, to uh, Memphis. I mean, both. I think it was just like uh, almost like going to play football. You know, when you start off in a position and then you get there, they draft you as a quarterback. You get there, he playing cornerback. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? So you so, thought
1: you were going to score. You thought you were going yeah, to Boston to get buckets.
0: Yeah, I thought they was drafting me to tell Paul Pierce, oh, we got Tony Allen in town. You know, it wasn't one of them type of things. Man, <clears throat> when I got there, Doc Rivers, we played a few games. He saw me in practice, you know. We got to the regular season. He was letting me, just filling me out, letting me loose, right? I was doing my thing, trying to do as much as I can in my minutes. It got down to the regular season. I remember this like yesterday. First game of the season, I want to say, we played against Alec I Somehow, you know, um, I don't know, I think we just got beat. I don't know, I think I had started or something. And I know one game, Doc was like, T.A., come here. I came to the side. And this was after the game. We lost or whatever. He rewinded the tape. And he told me, he was like, yo, look at this. You You see who shot the first shot of the game? I looked at the film. I said, I shot the first shot of the game. And he looked, he looked down in the, in the, uh, at, the, at the court, and he said, you see that guy over there? That's Paul Pierce. He get paid the big bucks. That means if you want to play on this court, you need to be doing everything he not doing. <laughs> <laughs> so that's playing defense, dabbing for loose balls, taking charges, and and being a cause of havoc on the um, defensive end. And if you got to shoot, and, make sure the clock is under four. You get what I'm saying? So I knew right then, like, oh, I don't get no clear outs. <laughs> we ain't running no one uh, two ISO screen flex for TA. <laughs> None of those type of options are for me. And it was right then and there, like I the adjustment gotta come. Like I need to pay attention more in these defensive drills, I need to listen more and film. It was like instantly, like, how do I stay on then? What I need to do? All right, I need to be the best in shape. I'm going to be first in the weight room today. I'm 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 going to try to win. I'm going to try to sprint so fast on these conditioning tests that they're going to be like, oh, yo, did he just do that? Like, you know what I'm saying? Things of that nature. And I was just working, man. My rookie year, and uh, uh, unfortunately, I was unfortunately, you know, caused uh, injuries. To my knee, unfortunately, but uh I think that also adjusted me to play like focus in more on defense. Cause it was like time to survive in the league then, like my third year. Boom, I'm right after my I I get a surgery, I look up in the paper. We didn't trade Al Jefferson, we didn't trade Delonte well, we didn't just trade everybody, Bobby Serviak, and then everybody gone. And I had to look at the paper again and see that they trade me but then nobody want no toe of me just yet then. So I kind of think Danny Ainge, like you had to ask Danny Ainge why he kept me in that in that trade. I don't know why he kept me.
1: Yeah, because they moved what it was Ryan Gomes, and they were able to hang on to Rondo because I had always heard that Ainge's argument with Mikhail was, I, if I get rid of Rondo, I don't have a point guard. So it was Gerald, it was Al, and Gomes, who actually had a nice little run with you, but that was yeah. a team that, you know... I, I,
0: I thought it, I don't mean to cut you off, but I thought the Gone would have stayed one more, like if we'd have gave him one more year, I think he would have been one of those boars D.L. type, you get what I'm saying? 12, yeah. 13, 14 year career guys. Big shout out to Ryan Gomes. He just, <laughs> Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. Like I was saying, like before I told my knee, before I took when I when I told my knee, the next year we was in the finals. You see what I'm saying? We 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 traded for three superstars. So I had to I had to learn on the flat quick and defense me sticking Paul every day it don't get no better than that and your rehab you get what I'm saying and that's
1: yeah. that's what I I like about you know is, is we're sitting here and be like hey they're getting rid of all these guys but they got rid of guys for Kevin Garnett they bring in Ray Allen and and Pierce kind of had to adjust a little bit what was your first like oh wow like this is completely different now than <laughs> the first few years in and Doc is still in place so you know you. You try to lose many games. You could at the end of 7 You've got the injury. You're trying to figure out how you fit in. I mean, that's a great line about checking the newspaper, double checking you're not moved out because they had to move a bunch of pieces. But give me the first like wake up moment of like, whoa, this is completely different now.
0: Man, just seeing Ray Allen and uh, Kevin Garnett, seeing how those guys were like, they would be in the in the rookies' sessions of working out, like, like they have like. When it, Say, we got time frames where you're going to work out. The young guys, you know, some of the young, the young, young guys about to be old guys and the old guys come in later. You would think Kevin and Ray would be the guys that will come in later. No, those guys coming in with the rookies and second year players, getting their workout going so hard, it's like looking at them. It's like, damn, is that what you're supposed to be doing? It raise your bar of working out up. So it's like, uh, you got to come with it. And then Ticket had like this major pain sergeant-like type vibe when he come in the the locker room. And it'll be like, hey, what you doing? You ain't working out? You didn't work out. It was like, if you got caught doing that and Doc seen you, Doc would be like, oh, yeah, he right. You got all this energy. It's your second year in the league. You supposed to be da-da-da-da-da-da. You get what I'm saying? So you didn't want that. So it always kept me on my, on my like on my grind because it was like I didn't want Dr. to see me not working. I didn't want doctor C. Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen in here working harder than me. You get what I'm saying? Or like I had that always on my mind. So I just knew it was real and I knew he was playing for something better than just getting on ESPN. I knew these guys came here, you know to get it done, to go to the promised land. That's winning that trophy. So, I don't know. I just wanted to be a piece to the puddles, puzzle. And I knew I had to be, one, in shape. And I had to be in full compliance of what we had going on. Whether it was grabbing a Gatorade and, or a towel and giving it to a teammate. That's what they needed me to do. I was in compliance. So, uh, I bought in early when I when I saw those guys came.
1: And that accountability, that that leads to the infamous boxing glove story, right? Uh, so, Pierce, go ahead. Why don't you share that one with us? Whatever you want to yeah, do, because I know, like, I know there's a lot of versions of it.
0: Yeah, like you know, Kevin Garnett was in the weight room early. Like I was telling you, he would always see us. And you know, the young cats. You know, we'll always be arguing. Da, da 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 da. Disagreements here, but that's the building was full of competition. Like we was competing about everything. Like, oh man, it was it was so great it'd be bets about just anything. I I could beat you in minutes and sprint on the bike at five miles. You know what I mean? Just anything. So I had, a, I had a situation where, you know, well, we had a situation where Paul Pierce got upset with O'Patrick Patrick O'Brien. And da-da-da, it was Verge exchanged. And Paul told him, you know what? When I come back here tomorrow, I'm going to have the gloves. And then everybody started saying, yeah, yeah, we just going to... Yeah, we going to get the gloves. everybody who got problems, <laughs> right? So they came in there with the gloves the next day. So now imagine I was campaigning, and bringing the gloves. So I'm like, all right, let me go and get man over with, because I don't want to, you, you know, get hurt in the ray room or nothing like that. So I picked out the biggest dude. I went straight for Big Baby Davis. I say, Big Baby Davis, come on over here, man. We ain't even got to talk about it. Come on, get in this, get in this circle. Man, I, I, I swore on the first pro punch like, you know, I was supposed to, and boy, man, baby cocked back, boom, hit me that one time, I fell out. <laughs> I'm like, man, I quit. That was right then and then, I knew boxing wasn't for me, man. Boxing was not for me. <laughs> and Big Baby running around, he running around with his hands up like, Ali, I'm the greatest. <laughs> I'm the greatest. And I was like, man, I ain't no box Let's go play one-on-one. You know, it was one of those type of things, but it was camaraderie to me. It wasn't really like no, you know what I mean. It was like we was just goofing around, had some fun. It's actually a uh, just, just, just some skill game for the for the condition.
1: <laughs> so he knocked you out. He knocked you out.
0: Yeah, man, he knocked me out. Like I wasn't, I was I was concussion protocol or nothing. You know what I'm saying? But like the 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 wind and the punch and you know how those gloves soft and leather pull up like oh man this gotta be it. This is it. <laughs> <And> it was <laughs> funny though. Big big shout out to Big Baby Dave. That's my boy, man. That's my boy. All
1: right. So Garnett is, hey, congrats to Garnett Hall of Famer. You know, and I have I was doing the studio games back when you got drafted. I was doing them. I did like 80 games that year when you won the title. And so I wasn't in the locker room. I, I wasn't like a beat guy. I'd be back up in the studio. But I have never seen somebody come in and kind of change everything that way. And I imagine you're close with him, the Chicago background. Like, give me your best Garnett story. Because he's not always the easiest guy to figure out. And he's not there to make friends. But I wouldn't ever call him a jerk or anything. It just he was He was just an edge that he had every minute you were around him that worked and it worked because of who he had been his resume and the fact that he'd been in the league a while too it was like well, it's time to start winning some games
0: well I'm gonna tell you um around KG man like uh growing up we, we just had mutual friends uh when he moved to Chicago you know obviously a lot of people that I know you know was around him and uh like I said we had mutual friends so a lot of my people would always tell me about, you know, how to, you know, how to get to the league, how to get to the NBA. They used to watch him and such such and I should do this, I should do this. I would take advice and, um, I just got a lot of history just knowing about Kevin Garnett before I actually got to the NBA. So when I first got to the NBA, you know, I thought it was real cool that, you know, Kevin Garnett knew exactly who I was and, um, uh, when I got on the court, that was one of the first things he said, was like, what's up, little T.A.? He's like, yeah, I know who you is. He's like, welcome, congrats. We was on the free throw line, boom, came back to the line. was like, yeah, I know what it is. He's like, look, we finna bust your ass, though. <laughs> and I was thought that was just funny because he was so serious, he was kind of, I was, I was so spooked, I ain't really know I was in all shocked, scared, and excited at the same time that he even talking to me then. And, um, you know, he used to have all his homeboys and stuff sitting in the front row or whatever. I looked to the side. I had knew, like, three of them. I knew three of them. And it was just, it like, it went organically, man. We went on. They they probably ended up winning. I don't know about the game. But I just remember him his first words saying something to me from me getting in the NBA. We was in the Timberwolves Stadium. Man, ever since then, like I've been seeing him, he been he been straight cut just like that. Like, like you say, it could be a, a you know a little rude or whatever. That's just his. That's the way he come off. He just tough bone all the time. Like, like, hey, what you doing? Like, when, like, like he got almost that security guard type feel to him. <laughs> you know, they not they just doing their job they they could be mean sometimes but they just doing their job and i thought he did the best impression of just um on the work ethic side just showing the youth how to how to how to keep working never giving up uh i just thought like man he he could have been real full of himself but he didn't never display none of that when he was around us he was always team thing, whether we went out to eat, whether we went out, whether we went to a banquet or whether we had a team function. He made sure everybody was together. I can't say that about him. His work ethic, it goes without saying. Like I say, he the first one in the gym, last one to leave, Mr. 2010. Great Hall of Fame, a good friend of mine. I'm so happy that he made it to the Hall of Fame. Man. And, and I really realized why he was going so hard, why he would always be on the young cats or why he would always get upset if something don't execute why it's properly planned. And um uh, when I saw him get on that stage, man, I I damn near went in tears. Just just seeing, like, dang, that's that's what that's why he worked so hard. That's why he was so serious and watching film. That's why he would, you know, snap before the media come in, curse our teammates out sometime when we will play well. It all made sense. He was doing it for to be the greatest. Or try to be one of the greatest that they call Hall of Fame, like they do all the greats, you know? And I like his his his, his ending speech. I liked everything about how how that how that went and took place, man. And man, KG, man. Big shout out to KG, man. Hall of Fame. Put some respect on that. We
1: know Pierce and LeBron didn't like each other. What I, what did you understand about that? What was the deal behind that? I mean, I, They still don't like each I, other
0: this what I honestly think, and Paul a good friend of mine, I don't know. But I just always thought it was just the word king. We grown man, got the look, young cat coming in that's calling him king, you know what I mean? And then it was like at the time, you know, these were the conglomerates of the league, you got Paul, KG, right? you know what I mean? It's like, what, king? We can call no money, no damn king, king. You know what I'm saying? And at the time, it was like, KG? It was like he was KG, so it was like, oh man. And then Paul was in Paul Pierce, like, as like, I'm call him the best small forward in the league. He was like, yo, well, I look invisible. <laughs> it was one of those situations. And I think that fired him up throughout the whole year. Every year he played against him, like, I thought that that was the main reason. Uh, and uh, he had a lot of hype, you know, coming out of high school, you know, we was like, Yo, who is this kid? Who is this kid? And it was instant beef. Soon as we got on the court, Kevin Garnett in his face. Yeah, yeah. Paul Pierce talking crazy, and it was like it was it was only right for me to ha- to for that to like fall on me too. Like, yeah, the heck with the king. We yeah, who's the king? You know what I'm saying? So I was right along with it, but more importantly, man, we had to respect this game. And that's how that team. When you beefing like that, somebody. They like you, but they can't respect you at the moment in the heat of the battle. That's what I
1: think. I, I saw LeBron talk back to Pierce. Would he say anything to KG? Would he say stuff back to KG the way he would talk to Pierce when you guys are out there, especially that 2010 series?
0: Man, it was so. Much.
1: Or 2008, really. Is, 2008,
0: is series. Yeah. 2008. 2008. It was a lot of trash talk. But LeBron was a kid then, man. LeBron went number 2019. However old he was, maybe what twelve LeBron was around that time. Like
1: uh he would have been in the league in what, oh three, so you're probably twenty-three years old, something like that, maybe. I'll look it up now. No,
0: they weren't really all the way, but he was causing havoc. And you know, we was the we was the uh we was the big three to get through. And uh I think that's what motivated him to go over there with Dwayne Wade. I mean, uh <laughs> and Paul Pierce used to be at that man head every time. I remember he scored fifty and fouled out. Paul Pierce scored fifty and fouled out. And uh, I remember that game. That was probably one of the best, exciting games. When you know, I think Paul had fifty. LeBron had forty-nine. I think I told LeBron for the last shot. I told him, "Yeah, good DTA." I spoke in third person. He missed. He turned around. He said. And I just missed. <laughs> I knew I was then in his head. I knew it was then. I was then in his head. Cause if he wasn't tripping, he'd have just walked past. But it was a like for the game, too. He shot it from deep. I thought he, I thought he made it. I hadn't played the whole fourth quarter. I get in playing for one possession. I'm just so just amped up with Paul. The way Paul didn't talk so bad about him in the huddle. Like, he ain't that. You got it. And you da-da-da. I'm believing this. I'm actually believing. I'm like, man, I just saw this man dunk on people's head. You tell him. You know what I'm saying? But I got to stay firm on who I am. So I went out there and got to stop and told him that. You know? (laughs) He said, man, I just missed. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you just admitted.
1: Yeah, you were like, not only did I say this, and then you're like, I just now to update the story, admitted that I did it in third person. All right, let me let me not take up your entire day. Let me leave you with this, because I asked you before, but but you complimented Dwayne Wade. So I'm going to follow up again on it instead. You added Dwayne to the guy you had trouble with. Give me a guy who was was at a certain level, but you could tell. When you tipped it off, he didn't. He didn't love the fact that he was in Memphis and having to deal with you guarding him.
0: Hey, hold on! It was a lot of people like that. I now see a lot of people. I'm talking about a lot of people. And in this type of in this type of situation, you would have to you have to probably name names because it was a lot of them. You hear me? Like it was a lot of guys that came in the building never got their average every time they played. You see what I'm saying? It was certain guys. I ain't going to lie. It was certain guys. <laughs> used to be like, all right, I ain't going to try to kill or get my numbers until T.A. sit down. It was su- Your favorite superstar used to act like that. You see what Mine? I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your favorite superstar. Are you talking about Steph? No. Nah, nah. Well, I mean, Steph already came out and told the real, hey, T.A. was one of the toughest. You know, so that I big salute right. to Steph, but it wasn't him, though. It But I'm just saying that to say, man, it's a lot of them, man. I ain't going to lie, man, what what it was. Paul Pierce, man, he pretty much told me, man, if you could stick me, you could just stick about just about anybody in the league. All these attributes I got in my game, the step back, the head fake, the spin, the fade, my body big, you know what I mean?
1: Pierce on the angle thing had everybody. He yeah. just had the angles, but he didn't have to go fast. I mean, because nope. he was actually more athletic than people gave him credit for. Exactly. He just didn't have to do it.
0: Exactly. So it would it would be it would be easy for me to like try to study somebody who was just like one dimensional. Like if you could just catch and shoot, that's I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm gonna lock you up because all I gotta do is be physical through these screens, going through these down screens, coming over these pick and roll, and just stay in front of you. You Get what I'm saying? That's how I feel about a guy that can dribble. Now if you could dribble and your jump shot wasn't that great, I would give you a cushion. You had to beat me over the head. You know what I'm saying? I lay contest. You know what I'm saying? And then you got those superstars who would just get to the line all the time. You know what I'm saying? If I knew if I stayed out of foul trouble, don't foul this guy. Nine times out of ten, he's gonna be shooting two for eleven. left. You know what I'm saying? And I and I conditioned my body, I did all that. But if you wanna just throw some a name in there to, to just to keep this sauced up, uh let's see. We'll see a guy like uh, we'll say uh but now he was ah, uh, it's a lot. You got me thinking, man. I ain't thought about none of my players in in my era in a while, man. I've been looking at the new generation, man. But uh, I don't know. I I, I don't know. I, I can't even give you one. I'm 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 I'm, I'm stuck right now.
1: <laughs> I I think you're being nice, and you don't want to to give yeah, out any names. Because, you know, I just, no, that's cool. I, that's cool. I'm asking.
0: I just got out of controversy, man. With my boy Draymond. That's my dog. I I didn't wanna go that way. You
1: guys him. are cool? I yeah, thought you Draymond. Cool,
0: cool. I mean, it's respect. It's a respect thing, you know. We ain't buddy buddies or nothing, but you know, yeah, he keeps the type of guy, man, you could have a glass of wine and cigar with, man, and talk about some old time, man. He wanted of them type of guy. I just didn't want that to go back to that. But uh like I said, I can't give you nobody right now, man. I can't give you nobody, man.
1: That's hey man, I'm I'm this was great. You <laughs> you you gave me plenty. Um, I know, because I don't want to take any anyone's name, especially a young kid like Davion Mitchell at Baylor, but his nickname Off Night, man, you were you were the original off night, especially in Memphis. So uh I appreciate the time and a lot of respect for
0: you. All heart, man. You know it's all hard, man. First team, anytime when we do this it's love, man. I enjoy myself as well, man.
1: All right. You can follow Tony Allen. That's uh A-A-Triple. Oh, triple zero, uh, G nine. That's Tony Allen on Twitter. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. You know what I hate, hate is after lunch, there's all this time before dinner. I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? It's like, you should gain season, throw in a little something extra, an appetizer that just starts hours before dinner. It just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options. That's where Arby's new two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps come in. Available in your choice of ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for that afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Food Buddies. Arby's two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Jeff Garland joins us. And this is my first time I've actually had a chance to talk with you. I I guess, did you ever do any of the ESPN stuff to promote anything? Because I know every now and then guys would kind of look forward to it. I know you're a huge sports fan, but they bring you by. next thing you know, you're booked for like 20 shows and everybody hates it.
3: Yeah, uh, I did once. Did all this stuff. I would do it again. I enjoyed it. It's a little much, but.
1: It's a lot, right? mm Mm-hmm. Jeff is eating peanut butter jelly. Is the, what do we have? A waffle sandwich there? Because that was a little yep. bit more intense than just the
3: whole grain waffle, organic peanut butter. Yeah. I'm I eat I eat actually this is about as bad as I eat.
1: Yeah, that's a big, big thing for you. You just cut yeah. out sugar, huh? And it was just mm. it was just on.
3: Yep. Just that's it.
1: Yeah. That's it. End of the story. Yeah. (laughs) There's nothing else to it. Uh, What did you go? What year did you go to ESPN? Do you remember? Do you remember? What were you promoting?
3: I'm guessing a movie that I made or, or curb or something. I, it's all a blur, like, you know, but I did enjoy myself. I like going from building to building and, you know, uh, at ESPN, there's a, um, a minimum level of, um, of, um. Uh, how good somebody is like there's a, there's a nice hard floor. So everybody was pretty gosh, darn good. There is uh, a glass ceiling and most people don't break the glass ceiling, but in terms of the floor, it's solid. And you can't always say that. I turned down one in ESPN uh, recently. It was about, they wanted to talk about why I love the Cubs. And when you limit yourself like that, it's a boring conversation.
2: I mean, yeah, we
1: really we really are obsessed, though, like on the sports side, like trying to get celebrities. Like celebrities have never been more valuable, where everything that's content, it's like, okay, do you want these guys talking about this topic? And it's like, hey, if this guy owns a Cubs hat, let's book right. him.
4: <laughs>
3: and I, and well, I know you're <laughs> – Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, – by the way, I want to really be clear. Actors are boring as shit. You have to know about actors. It takes no intelligence to be a good actor, to be a good comedian, uh, to be a good writer, uh, to do what you do. You need a, a, a modicum of intelligence and, um, and uh, uh, um, talent. Whereas an actor can be just be good at being an actor, but they think they can go out like on a talk show and just be interesting. No Boresville man. I hate when I'm on, when I'm following an actor on like a late night talk
1: show. You don't like to fall. I would think you would want them to open for you because then you could just my
3: man. I want to follow Dave Chappelle. I want to follow greatness because I want to be measured against it. I want to rise up, you know, and do my best. Um, if you, if you don't have confidence, of course you want to follow someone who sucks, but I don't have an ego. Like right now you could tell me, look, my producers wanted you. and I go really, you know, but I didn't, I'd be okay with it. I don't really, I mean, I like to recognize ego and say, no, thank you to ego, but I'm supremely confident. And I'm honored to be on your show. So if you're confident and you're grateful, what, what can't you do? What can't you enjoy?
1: Okay, so you just said that about, that was a, a flamethrower to actors. Um, why are you so unimpressed with actors?
3: Because uh, I've been one for years and it takes, you memorize your lines and either you're genuine and real and someone believes you or they don't. And also I can tell you flat out, if you're an actor and you audition for Curb or anything comedic, do not try and be funny. Let the lines speak for themselves, the situation, and either you're funny or you're not. There's, uh, there's many levels of it. There's people who can really put a spin on things that make it funnier. Those people are few and far between. They're single digits, man. And so um, I watch people who I refer to as enemies of comedy. Enemies of comedy are are actors who think they're great at comedy, and they're not. But they'll shove their, quotes, comedic skills down your
1: throat. When you guys have a new episode of Curb, how does the script process of that work? Like, how does how does that work? Is it the same as everything else? Because it feels like when we get it on our end, there's there had to have been room for improvisation in, in different well, versions. See, it, is of impro-
3: it is improvised. Right. But I got to tell you what Larry David writes right from the get go is generally perfect, like literally perfect, sublime. How's that?
1: Yeah, because that's not usually how writing works. Is no, it's not. Everybody I'm makes you lucky. do it over and over and I over again. I other
3: people besides Larry David, and there's a lot more work. I mean, Larry David works hard. But once Larry David writes something, it's a gift to me, always. It's just a gift. Like, wow, thank you. I don't even have to try and make that funny.
1: So if he's writing, though, he's he's writing... Is he writing it word for word or is he writing the concept? Is he writing the scene out? And then that's where you kind of know where the end beat is. But then it's up to you to kind of take it there.
3: It's the entire scene. It's a a paragraph or two about what has to happen in the scene. But what you say and how you say it um, is your choice. And you adjust every take.
1: So the panty scene is your favorite. I've I've seen the interviews panty where scene. he's wearing.
3: Oh, where Larry's wearing Larry <laughs> <laughs> women's panties. Well, yeah, I don't know that that's my favorite scene. Um, I just saw on uh, Instagram the other day, somebody reposted the scene from last season where Larry David talks about how special his hands are, that he's really good at washing dishes. And it's. I love that scene. That scene is perfection to me. Um, yes, I love the scene where he happens to be wearing ladies' panties because you're you're never prepared to see Larry David in women's panties. You're not, and I wasn't. And I generally don't laugh a lot. I mean, we laugh all day, but usually it's outside. I mean, actually, no, we laugh all day because Curb is one of the only shows where the actors, when you make another actor laugh, we keep it in. You know, it's not like you shouldn't laugh. Go to your, you know, be, you just, as as long as you're real, it doesn't matter. You know? Um,
1: So how, how would that seem? Because I've seen you talk about it where you knew what the punchline is. Like Larry pulls his pants down. He's wearing women's panties because he had had to hide them because they were yours. But then he lied and it was like the whole thing. So even though, you know, what's coming, like, how would that be? How would that be written out? Like, how does that get to you guys as you kind of do a read through? We don't do a read through at all. We don't rehearse. We don't do read throughs.
3: We don't do rehearsal. I get the script before we go into production. And then, uh, you know, as all the scripts, I, 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 it's like one of the treats that I get is I get to read these outlines and they're very in depth. They're about seven pages. Normally a script for a sitcom is like 30 pages. Ours are seven pages. And we improvise the rest.
1: Okay, that's kind of that's kind of what I thought. Now, how yeah. bad? I, it's funny because I was I would always think that, like the weird thing with the role on the show is you play his manager. Yep. is how like they, here's one of my favorite TV show stories ever. Is the guy I don't know if you ever watched The Wire? But I the watch act-
3: The Wire, please every right, episode. Right.
1: So uh, the actor who plays Bubbles, yes, the Heron actor. lovely okay? guy. Right. I forget his name. I got to look right. it up right now. Surely, if you could look that up for me. I ran into him whenever I stay in Chicago, I'd say it like the Thompson or something like that. So I'd stay right there and then I would run into him. And the first couple times I saw him, I didn't want to say anything to him because I just didn't want to bug him. You know what I mean? I was like, I'm not going to bug him. And like the third time, he was like, I know who you are. And I was like, oh, shit. I was like, I love the show. I didn't want to bug you, whatever. He's like, I wish you bug me. He's like, I, you know, we're finishing up power. He's like, I have nothing to do. I'm just kind of hanging out. So I started asking him about this excerpt of a book. Where in this book about the wire, Mark Wahlberg runs I have, into that. I have that book. We keep okay, going. Okay, right. He runs in to the actor the plays Bubbles and sees him at this party in Hollywood. He's like, "I'm so proud of you, man. You cleaned up your shit. You cleaned up your act." <laughs> He's like, is what? that true? <laughs> yes. And so I asked him about it. Uh, Andre Royo is is the actor's name. And he was so nice about it. But he's like just sitting there laughing. And he kind of has the same accent and the same cadence in person yeah. that he even had in the show. And so I'm going to imagine actually happens to you where people don't quite – like does that actually happen where people oh, think no, no, you're no, the no, manager? No. Well, no.
3: That happened at the beginning of the show. The beginning. A lot. Okay. A lot. Like I get stopped on airplanes. What's it like managing all that money? <laughs> but also – what an awful not, um, question, by the but, way. What a terrible... But, but, well, my, but also, uh, my character doesn't manage his money. You know, <laughs> as a matter of fact, this season, we introduce a new character played by Patton Oswald, who's our money manager. That's so, good. He, yeah, I don't, I don't even manage his money, let alone, you
1: know. Patton has one of the greatest lines in Veep, which is hard to come by because Veep is so good. But when yeah. they have Mike McClintock up and and Doyle and Pat and Oswald are are with uh, Jonah Ryan, who's Timothy Simons. And they're in the room and they're like, he looks like Yosemite Sam and Pat Oswald says, without the credibility. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good line. It's such a good line. You'll have to ask him if he came. All right, so here's a question I've always had, because I think the audience that grew up with Seinfeld and then got to know Larry, they were like, oh, wait, they're like, what's going on they're like is larry the brains behind all this which is unfair to jerry seinfeld because you can't do that to him but one thing i always thought was interesting i was like george is constantly on the show dating women that would never date this guy in real life was that something that larry decided like let's just make george a guy that for some, no reason whatsoever has attractive women interested in him throughout multiple seasons of the show
3: ryan ryan <laughs> why are you asking me this When was I ever even on Seinfeld? How the fuck would I know? Oh, I don't mean it because
1: you would have been on Seinfeld. I mean, like knowing Larry. I have
3: no idea. Yeah, but you watched it. Knowing Larry,
1: no, I would say. He doesn't
3: think that way.
1: Okay, all right. I just always thought that was something.
3: Larry never purposely, I I love that I took you aback by that. Um, Larry doesn't do anything for like... uh, Let's do it a different way. Let's he just thinks the Larry David way, and whatever way that is, it works.
1: Okay, I have another question here. On season two of Different Strokes.
3: I love it though. Go. I want you to even ask. Ask me about family matters. How did just, Urkel? How did you invent Urkel? <laughs> ask me how I invented Urkel. I would love that.
1: Wait, you weren't Newman? What? No, I'm <laughs> yeah. just kidding. Um, you're you're special. Yeah. I read about that. And I would have you did had too. You watch it. I want you to watch it, please. No, I know. I I need to watch no, it. I, I'm, no, no. But you don't need to. You could. Yeah, I should have.
3: No, you could have. Don't ever <laughs> say should, Ryan. Be nice to yourself. By the way, do you think there was a delay in me agreeing to do this show? No, I dig you, man. You're you're excellent. You are excellent. So I am. Uh, yes, you're excellent. Leave it at that.
1: Okay, but I in. The interview that you did, I thought it was really cool in the way you did it. And now this is why after I done, it, I was like, I got to make sure I check that out. Is that did? you kind of did like two different shows in your home. So like it felt like you in the lead up to it, you're like, I'm going to I'm going to take chances in the, f- the second one because I nailed the first one, which then it turned out everybody liked the second version of what you yes, did in the yes. taping better than the first one, which is. No, no, no. I liked it better.
0: Oh, you Netflix know, liked they, they, the other one better.
1: No, Netflix didn't have an. No one has an
3: opinion except me. If I make, I mean, I'll ask my friends. You know, I'll screen it for people. I uh, talk to the director. But what it was was, I felt so good about my first show that I filmed. It's like, oh, I nailed everything I wanted to. That the second show, I kind of went way looser and had more fun. And so that's the one I used.
1: Why'd you have more fun?
3: Um, there was nothing to accomplish except joy. And when you're, when it's only about being funny and being joyful and there is no agenda. Now, mind you, when I go up, let's say at the comedy store doing a spot, I don't have an agenda. I don't have anything. I mean, I might want to accomplish something, but in general, it's just staying in shape going on stage, which now as we speak, Prior to the pandemic, I, I think I, the longest I ever went without doing stand-up was two two weeks, and now we're at a year and a half for me.
1: What's staying in shape? I like, I like that phrase. I like how well, you say that. Well, it's
3: like, um, you know, uh, football players got to do the drills, got to – do the weights, got to do all the stuff, got to read the playbook. Well, when I go on stage at a comedy club, that's what I'm doing. The exact same thing. So when I film a special, I'm in the best shape mentally and physically to make it work.
1: I think I probably should have been more specific about it then because I, I get that concept of it. But like, when do you know as a comic, you're like, all right, I've got this. I've got the delivery. I've got the oh, pauses. Okay. And, yeah. So,
3: oh, Okay. In your career or in a specific show?
1: Honestly, you can answer both. Okay. So first I I'm
3: going to go back to the special for a second. There was uh, uh, a couple in the audience that I was talking to. And it was an unrequited love. It was something that I had been through that I had understood. And I had more fun with them. and it, And I didn't... Uh, I made fun of them and it and myself. Like, I never want anyone to feel bad when I'm doing my comedy. If anyone's going to look bad, it's me. And I remember thinking to myself, as this was happening, I cannot believe that this is being captured by the cameras for my special. This is something that would happen in a club and nobody would know about the next day. And it was blowing my mind as it was happening. Now, in a career... Um, you can have mo. It's I, I. I think that there's two things that you can compare uh, stand-up comedy to. Number one, that's jazz. When you're really funny, you can improvise from an outline. You can have a classic piece of material, but you do it differently every time, and you play with it. Um, but career is really about. Um, you can compare it to golf you know um whereas you know you have a great golf game yeah good luck repeating that the next time whereas in stand of comedy i'm ah, i'm going to jump here staying with staying with golf though i have a golf i i had a golf teacher who was very old. He in his 90s teaching me. And he was brilliant.
1: That's a good score.
3: And he, uh, yes, it's good. It's good. for me, that would be like a hole-in-one every hole. Uh, uh, that's the same thing as me getting in the 90s. Anyhow, um, he was telling me that he, he taught, uh, amongst other people, Mark McGuire. And he said, Mark McGuire, he'd show me where he'd hit the balls, one after another, another. He goes, that's Mark McGuire. He's supposed to do that. Uh, Tiger Woods, if he makes a bad shot, should get angry because he's supposed to hit it good. I'm not supposed to hit it good. I'm supposed to, you know, every once in a while, look at me. You try and do the repeated stuff. Well, in the world of comedy, I'm Tiger Woods. I'm Mark McGuire. Uh, In terms of I'm supposed to, night after night, be that funny and be that good. But it is about... It's pretty difficult, just like repeating a golf game or a stroke. It's, very, it's the same thing with comedy.
1: What's it like being in a terrible mood and knowing you going to go out in a few minutes? Okay,
3: I, the, the, I've done that uh, hundreds of times. Uh, pissy, not feeling good. Well, guess what? It's my job. And it's my job that they have a good time. My job is to ease other people's pain. Screw my pain. My pain is not about, that's not what it's about, unless I can make something funny about it. It's not what it's about. My job is your pain. What kind of crappy day did you have? What, what, what is your stomach hurt? Does the woman you love, love you, not love you? Is she giving you crap? Is work good? My job is to ease your pain. So if I feel like crap, tough. That's not my job. My job is not to worry about how I feel.
1: Because yeah, in the second part of the special, when you talked about the unrequited love there and you, you were opening up and you were bringing them in where I know right. whenever that, that wall is broken down, like immediately, if you're in the audience, you're like, shit, like, I don't want anybody to notice me. Like, I remember being in a really small place and the girl I was with was way out of my league. And so the comedian was like, basically Let's hitting take on a her. Step
3: back, well, right, you know, look, I'm being humble. I, no, 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 that's not being humble. You were grateful to be with this great woman. Say it that way because she should have been
1: grateful to be with you hey look i'm trying to keep it together over here so i I, I have goals
3: yourself is a very very difficult hey i went on stage by the way just taken with where you're at um i performed the night my mother died because i forgot to cancel the show and i can't cancel last minute what time
1: did you find out
3: I, it was like in the afternoon she died. I was in shock. And that night I had a show. And I had to improvise because I had nothing planned. And I actually had a great show. It was a, it was a show that's kind of saved me. How old were you? This was three years ago, four years ago.
1: Did you tell anyone that you were around? Like, was anyone backstage? Did anyone know?
3: I don't know if I told anyone.
1: What did you do after you got done with your set?
3: Uh, I don't mean to sound, you know, uh, I uh, got in my car, went home as I did any other time. And, you know, when someone dies, it's that you forget about it. Oh, no, they're dead. I can't talk to them. You forget about it. it. Like, that's what happens for that year, that first year of recovery when someone dies. It's the in and out. So I'm sure my drive home, I was a big bull of the in and out. But I, um, I was grateful that I had comedy that night. At first, prior to the show, no, I wasn't grateful. I was like, oh, screw it. I got to go do a set. How can you feel worse than when your mom dies? But afterwards, I was so grateful, so grateful. Not that my mom died, that I had comedy.
1: Yeah, I think we were going to give you the benefit of the doubt yeah, thought, on that. Yeah, 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 but yeah. no, it is it is a really great point about anybody that does anything that's performance-related, um, that this becomes an escape for any of us that do anything. I mean, look, what you're doing is you're up in a stage. You're really putting yourself out there. I mean, we were always doing a show jeff we would be shielded from realizing like what our audience is was a completely different dynamic because you right. forget you're just sitting there van pelt and i are just going back and forth a couple hours right. a day but i'll 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 know at least for anything that i was ever going through once i knew i was on the air i wasn't thinking about anything else so that i think people may hearing you tell that story can't understand that that was actually an escape from your day right even though you were at the center of attention and you had to perform for others
3: right well, that I had it, that I had this skill and this environment to hang out in. What the hell are you drinking? What is that? Oh, just
1: water. Just a big water jug over here. Oh, that's a jug? Yeah. look
3: like some sort of, like you were having some sort of, uh, uh, one of those beers with like caffeine in it.
1: Yeah. I'm just, I'm just throwing some beers back here, 11 a.m. LA time. Just wanted to get loose for this interview. Um, okay. I, I have talked to other comedians about this, but. I find this part of it fascinating and that when you're coming up and you're younger and I will only speak for myself, um, in my industry is that when you're younger, you're like, I'm better than that guy I'm better than this guy. And you have this kind of edge to you, but you also have a lot of wasted negative energy because you're just sitting there comparing yourself to everybody else and all this shit.
3: The one word you're not using is ego, man.
1: Oh, there's plenty of that.
3: (laughs) It's all, it's all ego crap.
1: And then, you know, you evolve. And go ahead, keep, finish your question. Okay, so I imagine a lot of that stuff is, is the exact same way in comedy, where you're looking around you're like, why is this guy? People laughing at him or whatever, like, I'm better than him. No. How do you balance the ego no. and the edge? Oh, come oh, Hold on. on, hold on. All right, see, go then. ahead. Answer it, no,
3: then. No, because, hey, dude, listen to this. Okay, you um, are saying that you're looking around going, I'm better than him. No, my problem when I was a young comedian, yeah, I knew who I was better than and, or not as good as and all that stuff. But comparison is a dead end street comparing. But also what I didn't like and where I was an asshole is if you weren't funny, why are you here? What are you doing? I didn't really, as long as somebody was funny and they were really working hard, I didn't have much judgment. I had a lot of judgment for people taking up time on stage. The audience's time, the other comedian's time. It's like, if you stink, get the hell out of here. And I think everybody should be free to try, but at a certain point, quit, please. Please Okay,
1: but that's that's not totally, like, I I think whatever your approach to it was, if you at an early age were already okay with people you're competing with, then that's a credit to you. But as you, you kind of veer into like, I make a joke with my friends that I'll say like bad comedians kind of offend me because I can't believe no one in their life. Wasn't like, Hey, you've never been funny. Like this isn't funny. Or the people that are your friends, who was, who's the person to do that? Who's the person to say, what the hell
3: are you doing? By the way, Plenty of people, well, to this day, tell me I'm not funny. But when I was younger, people were like, what? You can't make... I, I have uh, uh, um, someone in my life who was important to me, but at an early age, um, they told me that I was being unrealistic and I wouldn't make it. I made them wait in line, a long line, to have me sign my book when it came out. I didn't okay, so there's... Of-
1: There's the edge there, though. Oh, yeah, no, no.
3: By the way, Michael Jordan, it drove Michael Jordan, I mean, more than any athlete I've ever seen. No. And you guys are basically the same. There you go. By the way, I look at adversity as my friend. Adverse. I once had dinner. I did this movie, Wally, and uh, the guy who made it, uh, Andrew Stanton, who also made um, Finding Nemo, immensely talented guy, crazy talented guy. And Peter Gabriel, who'd done some of the music for Wally, we had dinner together. And I remember the topic of our dinner, which was delightful, was adversity and how we all react to adversity. Adversity can feel like a punch in the gut. Well, once you recover from that punch what's your attitude? What are you going to do? And for me, I rise to adversity. So if you tell me I can't, that motivates me for sure. Um, if you, uh, but I'm not going to get into an argument with you about it.
1: Who was the first comedian that, you know, gave you, pulled you aside or saw, saw you perform, you know, somebody that you looked up to was, was there ever like the first moment of somebody who was established telling you that you could do this?
3: Nope, no one. Nope, 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 nope. People said nice things and I appreciated it, but there wasn't anybody early on who stuck their neck out or who who really took me aside. And it's a shame because I love doing that. Like if I see a young comedian, I love taking them aside and going, man, look at you. This is great. Um, People don't do that a lot. And so I did have people say positive things. Don't get me wrong. But I was so. I, I, it was a week after my twentieth birthday that I auditioned, and I'm sorry. I inherently knew I was funny, and I passed auditions the first night, and my career was off. And now I'm uh, next week. In uh, two weeks, it'll be 39 years. 39 years that I've been doing this. So I remember I was on stage with John Mulaney. We're doing a uh, conversation. And I, John Mulaney, I couldn't love his comedy anymore, and I realized that I had been doing comedy longer than he'd been alive. That was weird to me. That was a big weird one.
1: Before we finish up, um, yes, I remember listening to a John Hamm interview, you know, from Mad Men, and you know, it taken him a long time to yes, have have that moment. It and did. You know, he's from St. Louis, so I think that plays into it. I I've constantly mentioned how I just think people from the Midwest I just think you're wired better than the rest of us, to be honest well, we with you. Well
3: we have a, we have a work ethic, I have yeah, to say. But there's that a, I see it's it's very uh and it's very supportive.
1: It's pretty delightful. It's approachability though. It's yeah. it's a, it's an at I'm not saying like the entire region is happy, but there's an no. at peace element that I think that you I have. Don't know what
3: I, don't, I agree with you i i am um I'm being a Chicagoan but my name of my special is our man in Chicago. being a Chicagoan really has that's given me that and my father
1: are the backbones of who i am so when I listen to him, and so we're on the same page with this, I think that's part of it too, but he he had his break so much later, right that I think it made him. So did I better, better is the, maybe the wrong word here, but I think there's some similarities there with you, Jeff, no, is that no, no, it, no. It, you blow up later and you appreciate it more.
3: You, like, uh, it's not a matter of appreciate it more. You understand it more. It makes more sense to you. You can enjoy it more. Um, whereas um, you know, what uh, a 24 year old who makes it suddenly they have no perspective. And I I've watched many people Go through the Believe the Hype. I've seen the Believe the Hype and them never leave, which is so sad. But a guy like John Hamm, who is so spectacular, and he just did Curb again this year. I just worked with him uh, about a month ago. Um, his work ethic and and how special he is, it's delightful, you know, to be around somebody who from the get-go didn't believe the hype. I have never believed any hype in me. You know what I mean? It's like I know I got to go out and earn it every time.
1: Okay. Your least favorite thing about being attached to curb is what? <sighs> I already know the answer. You do? Yeah.
3: Because I'm 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 searching. My least favorite. Every thing day
1: it happens to you.
3: I have to leave my house.
1: <laughs> no. No, I like serious, at, no. I know you I like me at No, I know you like me at home. Yeah. No, it's it's pitching, people pitching you to pitch to Larry.
3: Oh, well, that happens. That all right. I'm about to next week. I'll be in Chicago. Week after that, New York, and I can tell. And then I'm going to Detroit for a bat mitzvah, and I can tell you, all three of those places, I'll get at least a dozen people coming up to me. Hey. I had this thing happen. It's just like Curb. And I say, I want to be clear. I'm one of the executive producers. I am one of the creative voices. It's, it's, it's Larry David, and my creative voice is about helping him get his vision on screen. Know that. But I have never pitched him. Ever. Ever. I've never said, this would make a good scene. This would make a good episode. Never. 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 And they yet these people think that they're going to come up to me in their story. And let me tell you something. No one has ever told me a good idea that I would go, oh, my God. I don't want to hear them. So, yes, that, that stinks. But I'm still nice to them. But, ugh.
1: All right. Well, so now I'm going to pitch you one. This is going to be the one that works. Oh, wait, are I'm you gonna...
3: really pitching me?
1: <laughs> Why are you doing this to yourself? Cause I'm going to try. I'm going to try something this happened. Is, hold on. You're so upset. You were like, this was going so you, well. Why I'm gonna, would
3: you do that? Hey, what is it you don't like about curb? All yeah. right. I'll, I'll figure that out. Cause oh. it's going to oh, work. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that. All right. Now I'm going to do the one thing you don't like about working on curb.
1: All right, Ryan, go ahead. So I'm parking my car in front of my house a couple of weeks ago. do you were cotton.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Leave out the
1: details. It doesn't matter.
3: Polyester, like combo.
1: There's an old man. There's an old man, really I need, old. I need the cotton answer. Uh, dry fit, tight. Oh, dry fit. Just okay. got done working, working out. Okay. So I park middle of the day. I see an old man shuffling. He's got a members only jacket, long pants. Just he's yeah. all buttoned up, head to toe, shuffling, yes. hat on. Yes. And then I notice about a block behind him, a huge younger guys following him. And I go, okay, what's going on here? I was like, something's weird. Cause this old man's walking through my neighborhood by himself. And now this old, this younger guy's following me and he's big and he looks a little, looks a little, you know, rough around the edges. So I sit in my car and I, I, I observe, I'm trying to figure it out. And so then the guy, the old guy walks past my, past my house, the young guy hides behind my garbage cans in the alley. And so now I'm like, oh Jesus. Like, is this guy going to rob this old guy? I go, I don't fucking need this right now. I go, but I can't not do anything. And I'm looking at the younger guy and he's big. I was looking at his hands. they were really big. So I was like, well, I'm not going to let him keep following this old guy around my neighborhood. And the old guy's crossing the street and this young guy's looking at him. He's hiding behind my garbage. I go up to him. I go, hey, is there something going on here that I need to know about? Like, what are you doing? He goes, oh, he goes, I'm a volunteer. He has Alzheimer's. So if I walk too close to him, he forgets that I'm with him and he freaks out. So I just watch him from far enough away.
3: What if I told you when you started telling me the story, that's the exact thing I envisioned. My, my version was, ask me, I'll be able will act it out. You're on curb now even. Go, ask me. Say, is there something I should, uh, I, I've been following him.
1: So go ahead. Okay. Uh, so you want me to start over and now you're going to be No, me? no, no,
3: no. You just approach me. I'm behind. I'm hiding. Oh, yeah. Okay. A, okay, all right, okay, all right, okay. All right. All right.
1: All right. We're like, uh, hey, what's going on with you? Why Why are you following this old guy?
3: That's my dad. He's got a lot of pride. He likes thinking that he goes out for walks by himself. That's what I envisioned.
1: Right. But see, here's the punchline. Okay. Larry encounters the two people and yes. then he thinks, he goes to you, he goes, I'm gonna start volunteering. And you're like, what do you mean you're gonna volunteer? I'd be like, you don't wanna volunteer, you don't wanna help anybody. No, I'm gonna start volunteering. He'd be like, Ryan, it's perfect Ryan, for me. Ryan,
3: Ryan, Ryan. Why did you just do this in a public forum? Now privately, no one would ever know about it. But you just for all your listeners, they showed you di- by the way, you did me a favor. I'll tell you why great because they just listened to that they knew it wasn't funny <laughs> they knew and then suddenly he decides for no reason he's going to volunteer ryan leave it to larry david to come up with the shows which is what i do and yet i can tell him ideas all the time that's number one number two your listeners are now like oh i'm never gonna bother jeff with that crap perfect wow. yeah Ryan, i did you a huge you favor yeah, you you did me a huge favor. That is, and by the way, can I also say that's maybe in the fifty percentile of how good or bad the ideas I hear. Yeah, but Larry would want to volunteer
1: because oh, then he wouldn't have then he wouldn't have to be friends
3: with to, the person. You stop stop now because now you're making an ass of yourself.
1: <laughs> well, I, I had to. to. I had to at the end. I okay. had to. I know I knew right. we were doing well. All right. Um I appreciate your time. Ryan, huge I appreciate fans. your
3: time. It was an honor to be on your show well, until you pitched me.
1: You th- is that how you look at it? Because I think you should look at it as that was really funny that he made it terrible at the end because it was going so well before.
3: No, I, I think to myself, oh, that poor guy and his ego.
1: Really? Yeah. Yeah, that's not how I, I think the audience, the audience on this end is like, that's, that's funny that you, you did, you did, you set it up to bomb. We've done it a few times before. It's kind of a thing we've done a few times. So.
3: Well, I don't know. That's the thing I'd want to be associated <laughs> with. I don't get it. So, what, well, Ryan? What makes your podcast different? Well, I do a really wonderful interview. I have a great time, but then at the end, I ruin it. I figure out some way that I can ruin it. That's very curb.
1: Yeah. Well, there you go.
3: If Maybe Larry had a talk, you can show, have that one. He would ruin it every time at the end. So the, so feel good about that, Ryan.
1: I do. I feel okay. great, man. Um, thanks a lot, Jeff. We ever my can pleasure. help. Let Big us know. Ball of
3: my pleasure.
1: All right. This episode is brought to you by Modelo. Modelo knows it's not about whether you win or lose. It's about cheering louder, traveling further. It's about showing up no matter what. Because you are a fighter and Modelo is your reward. An ice cold reward. Rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Modelo, the mark of a fighter. Shop delivery or pickup options near you at ordermodelo.com. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip. From free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more, book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine.
2: You want details? Bye.
3: I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine.
4: And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required.
1: Life advice, rr at gmail.com. First of all, mind's blown this week on the Kyle check-in on the dimensions. Kyle, have you been getting a lot of feedback on your your various social media?
4: Yeah, yeah, I think um, outlets. Mind's blown. But you know what people would say? If you listen to One Shiny Podcast, you weren't very surprised.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't understand where people thought you were this like ratty coding yeah, guy. Yeah, I saw
4: 170. I'm like, are you kidding? I'd be embarrassed.
1: You wouldn't even go outside, dude. Um let's also be nice to the people that weigh 170. All right. So relax. I just I don't know. We've got a good good audience here. So people learning about you for the first time. But yeah, I, I guess I was kind of thrown off by how many people thought you were sort of like smaller, you know, not stereotype here, but like a computer guy that just, you know, as soon as you got off with this, you were, you were on Minecraft all day, you know? <laughs> like you're, you're a little edgy guy. You're from, you're from a blue collar area. Like all your stories that you've told, you know, you think a guy who weighs 170 is going to sell a guy a broken Xbox for a bag of weed? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> you know, I mean, Probably it's, not. maybe, maybe guys 170 do that too. I don't, I don't know. Okay, here we go. Um and the thing is is people still can't I can't believe Sir Rudy that people still think this is a knighting. Like people are oh. still doing it every day. It's not Sir Pause Rudy. And I'm like, no, it isn't. And they they still think it is.
2: I appreciate it, but no, unfortunately, I'm not a knight. Wish I was. That'd be sick. You'd be into it. You'd be a good knight. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know. I don't know some-
1: though. I think you'd be into the gear. I think you'd be into the like. I know you like walking around outside and stuff. Those guys' nights are a lot of than rules, meetings.
4: right? A lot of rules. Yeah, it,
1: other That's than the true. meetings, they are outside a decent amount. I I would think. Um, I don't know though. If there was a Knights of the Roundtable committee, I think you'd be like a solo knight.
2: I'd be off doing my own thing for sure. Like I don't. I don't take rules. So maybe you as well. wouldn't be good. Yeah, yeah, I mean combat. I probably wouldn't be great at, at the hand to hand combat stuff as a guy who's you know five ten one sixty. Uh, so. I think you Not would great. take
1: your helmet off and your locks would tumble down across your face and people would be like, oh, wow. This
2: guy. Yeah, there'd be like an aura, but nobody's actually ever seen me fight or joust. You know, yeah. I just have like this. Oh, I've heard he's good at jousting. Nobody wants to challenge him, but I actually don't know what I'm doing.
1: You know, like actually, he just makes fun of other people's outfits and he's yep. friends with these other bigger knights. So nobody really messes. <laughs> yeah. Up. OK. All right. Let's uh, get to the point here. Twenty three years old. Five nine one thirty five. I'm a skinny Jew. Okay. Can, wait, can I say that? Yeah, you can. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's like that.
2: I mean, he that, said it. Oh Yeah, sunny. he said it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know the rules anymore. All right. So, uh, guys, check it in. The Great endurance. All right. Uh, sorry for the inside baseball question, but I have an entertainment-specific quandary. I work at a mid-sized film and television studio in... TV development. Last week, I was promoted from assistant to creative executive, which is relatively unheard of, especially for someone as young as me. It's a big deal for my career, salary, et cetera, but it also provides an obstacle. I've always wanted to be a writer. And before this promotion was looking around for writer assistant jobs in order to help myself get in a room. However, with this big promotion, I feel locked into doing development for at least another year. By that time, I'll tell you, your place didn't promote you thinking you're only going to do it for a year. Uh, By that time, I'll start to be known around the industry as a development exec and not a writer. It's obviously not a bad thing to be a young and relatively successful executive, no, but I don't want to stray too far into the realm of executive and have people only take me seriously in that sphere. Okay. As a person who's gone into writing from a career in radio, how hard do you think it is to switch between the entertainment areas would be? At what point do I need to drop the financial security being an exec and pursue writing full-time, if ever? Okay. Um, this is a good question, not because I know about what your deal is, but because I know what it's like in a different industry. Uh as I say every time with the writing part of this, I'm I'm doing what I'm doing, but you know I, I would not I c I wouldn't I can't give you any advice on what that's like. Um and you know, your deals and how you guys are there kind of every day and working on that stuff. It's not really, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with that because I'm not there. All right. So this is a really good question though, because I'll tell you this. When I started off in radio, there are always these moments where you would be like, Hey, if you want to learn how to run the board, you know, maybe you could get some more shifts and that way you're making a little bit more cash. And then, you know, when you go two weeks without a fill in shift, that way you can, you know, make a little extra money. And if you present it that way, it makes all the sense of the world. You're like, all right, that's good. Um, there's also, remember I got, I got started late. My first on-air job was minor league baseball, which really didn't make any sense that I was even on the air. We've been over this. Um, But I was 26 turning 27 that year. So then when that bombed out and then I was in Boston and then I got my first fill-in shift in Boston, I was 27. And then I think I got the full-time gig a few months later in the morning and then that turned into the afternoon. So that's around like 28 and I'm still only making – I made twelve grand the first year. They still owe me a few grand for commission, which I can't imagine what the interest is on that. Nineteen years later, um, I made twenty five grand my first year in Boston. That I was salaried, where I was actually an employee. Because before that, this is also another great one. Um, I mean, my career is like a long line of getting fucked over uh, on a lot of that stuff. So if you sense a, a tone from me every now and then, it's because you know. It's it's tough. It, you build up years and years of going like, are you serious? Like I remember, I was filling in in Boston on the radio station there, and it was owned by the Sporting News. And the Sporting News fucked me over so bad that I'll never like I'll never forgive them for that. But they, not that I have to worry about. It, I think at this point, but um. <laughs> They had a deal where they were like, Hey, can you fill in as like a second chair, third chair guy? And you just, you just kind of bullshit. Uh, you know, there's the host, you know, you did some filling stuff. We like you. Why don't you come by and you could just, you know, Hey, the Red Sox were last night and you take calls and you just sit there as a local talk show. I mean, pretty on like everybody understands the concept, right? So I did that. And I was like, Hey, how do I get paid? Or how's that work? How's the invoice thing? And they go, well, it's 75 bucks an hour. So, you know, you do three hours show, you do a four hour show, you're making, you know, almost 300 bucks. And I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. You know, like that would be able to carry me at least just gas and food. And I was, you know, I go home and do construction uh, for the days where I had no shifts on the horizon. And so I was like, this is great. So I gave it like four weeks and I think I, I don't know, maybe I got in six or eight shifts or something like that. And I invoiced them and I got back, I you know, just they cut me a check. And it was for half because in the head, in your, when you're broke and you're in your head, you're going like, oh my God, I'm going to, I'm going to get a check for 1200 bucks. Like this is nuts. And um, it was, it was less, it was a lot less. And I was like, wait, what happened at this on the deal? And I go, I thought it was 75 bucks an hour. And they're like, well, that's kind of more for the writer's And the ex-athletes, and the coaches, and the TV people, and like some of the other media people in town. So I was like, literally everyone except for me then. He's like, yeah, pretty much. I was like, you told me it was 75 bucks an hour the first time. And he's like, yeah, and it's not. But this is a great opportunity for you. Which it was. It was an incredible opportunity. So the reason I bring all this stuff up is that when you're kind of, and this isn't to our emailer here, but I'm going to make the point. Is there were a lot of times early in my career where I could have done something outside of being on air. And considering I was so broke, and at that point I was like, whatever, I'm gonna try to do this. Doing something else that wasn't gonna make me a ton of money and maybe get in the way didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Because I was never, I never wanted to be a producer. If I was gonna do it, I was gonna be on the air, and that was the only way I was ever gonna be happy. And so I noticed early on when I'd be working with producers, you could tell half of them always wanted to be on the air. <laughs> and at some point, they had made a decision that brought them down the path that they were currently on. And I'm telling you straight up, there was one guy at ESPN who I worked with who was all he wanted to do was be on the air and he, he hadn't been on the air forever. But everything was all the ideas were about him. All the zingers were about him. Everything I was doing on the show was about him feel filling some void of the decision that he had made years prior to not being on the air. Because, so whenever that would come up, I'd be like, hey, look, you just got to understand, like, whatever it was, whatever fork in the road I had, the choose-your-own-adventure of my life where it was like, turn to page 20 if you're going to be on the air and only going to be on the air, or turn to page 40 if you're going to do some producing because there's more opportunities, the money's a little bit better, it's more stable. There's more jobs. It's less competitive. All of those other things, like you, you flipped your page and I flipped to mine. And now here we are 10, 15 years later. And like we have different stories, right? We have completely different stories. So I'll admit too, coming from like I took, I turned to the tougher page and you didn't. So you can't be pissed at me. And you can really can't be pissed at anybody, even if you're frustrated creatively. So how does that play into the email? It's very clear that you want to be a writer. Okay. But you're now at a point, and 23 is really, really young here, so I'm not trying to scare you, but you're at a point because you're in a really competitive business. The fact that you even got this opportunity, if this is really what it is, to be an executive at this age and the money and and the parts of it, like that's really, really tempting. And you might be telling a story 20 years from now where you're like, you know, actually, I wanted to be a writer as you become this huge producer in television. Who knows? Right. Like, actually, I always wanted to be a writer. I think based on the limited exposure I've had to it, that writers probably look at producers the same way as on air people in a radio station or, you know, being on TV can look at some producers. Now, there's plenty of producers and I'll have Cerruti jump in here too. Like Cerruti never even wanted to be on the air, even though he ended up on the air for a stretch doing NBA stuff with Scalabrini after he worked with me at ESPN. Every time I talked to Cerruti, I knew that this was not a frustrated, you know, angered, want to be on air guy in the inside. So what I'd say before I get to Cerruti, what I'd say one more time to the emailer here is I think it's great that you want to be a writer and it's it's cool that you think you're going to be one, but you've already made a decision that is taking you down a path that, That might be great, and only you are really going to know if the not ever taking a chance as a writer, if that's going to frustrate you the rest of your life, or if you're going to be like, man, writing's terrible. (laughs) It's hard. You're by yourself. Stuff is due. Most of the time, you think your own writing sucks, even if you're great at it. Everybody that reads it has 10 different ways that they want you to change it. Even when you think you're close on getting a deal done, then it doesn't happen. And then you just pick yourself up and you start all over again. I've had moments where I was like, I'm this close on three things. And 30 days later, I'm not even fucking in the ballpark. And I'm like, all right, so you quit or you keep trying. So you only you can really answer this question. But I've been around enough people, at least on the TV and radio side to understand there are a lot of frustrated people made a decision a long time ago that aren't really doing the job they want, or they look back and say, I'm really glad I made the decision I made because that version of this, yeah, it's a little bit more money and you get a little bit more shine and that person gets to have their name on something. That stuff's that's hard. Worrying about losing my career because I say the wrong thing one time in however many years, or maybe it's just somebody's bad at the job. I mean, look at how radio lineups are overhauled all the time. You want to have a wife and kids and start a family it's like hey guess what we're moving to minneapolis because they they've got a morning they've got a midday slot that's open you know so no nothing against the minneapolis lineup but you get my point so i know i've spent a long time on this but it's it's a bigger overall thing that you have to think about here like you've got to think if i never write am i going to be really really frustrated you may not even know And you may actually go, I thank God I didn't do that because that was a lot harder and it kind of sucks. And this had way more stability and I'm killing it on this side. But you're 23 and you don't know the answers to those questions yet, which is totally fine. So don't freak out. But the whole thing like, hey, I'll give this a year. Don't tell anyone that. Don't tell anyone in the industry, oh, I'll just be a really, I'll be a really young executive with some power here if you have any. Don't tell anybody else that you actually want to write. I wish I had never told anybody that that's what I was doing because it's already hurt me a couple different times post ESPN, but it's not a big of a deal. So Rudy.
2: No. Yeah. I think everything you said is true. And just speaking for me personally, you're hundred percent right. I I never thought about wanting to host a show or something. I was just a a pump that you guys like you will, whoever Van Pelt gave me the opportunity to do that. So when the opportunity sort of was put in front of me, I was like, would I regret not trying this? And you know, you're you were younger than me at the time. Like you're 23. I was 30. Um, you know, I kind of was like, I don't have any kids, like, you know, if it doesn't work out, I'll still be able to figure it out. I'm confident like that I'd be able to, you know, figure it out in the industry. But I ultimately answered the question that yes, if I didn't at least try this thing out, I think I would be bummed years later saying, damn, like what if that what what could have been, you know? And you know, I did it, didn't work out, and that's okay for a million different reasons. And I figure out I've actually figured out what I liked and didn't like more by doing that. And I don't look back and regret. You know, leaving what I had, you know, at ESPN. Uh, so I think it's all about what you are willing to ex- sort of accept about yourself, and what you're willing to look back on in years and and feel like you regret about something. And if you feel like you really want to try this writing thing, and if you know you're ten, twenty years down the line, wondering and wishing what could have happened to your life, and you think that's really going to bum you out, then I think you should take a shot at it. You're 23, like you know, you obviously have a great situation right now, so. If it doesn't work out, there are other lanes that you can find yourself in. Clearly, if you're at that point at 23, you're a smart dude. Um, so I think it's just all about what you think in personal risk and what your sort of regret factor will be down the line as you get older.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there's another thing that you said that made me realize my answer was incomplete, although incredibly long. There's no reason why you can't just work on writing in your spare time. That's like, what you I was going to say.
4: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kyle knew it. Go ahead, Kyle. Yeah. That's it. I was, can't you do both? Like, it's not like um, when you're doing, like, if you were at home, doing whatever you're doing all but also being quote-unquote on air in your free time that would be you what sitting in front of a shitty camcorder just trying it out but if you're if you want to write in your free time like you get final draft yeah. you learn how to do it right you can make some awesome stuff and it's not like it's not going to seem low budget there you it's go just writing
2: you
4: make go. a the shit best thing ton of about me and write
1: the best thing about this guy is you can write what's selling is <laughs> your you know but again you're probably young and although i'm you know Writing, going, hey, I just want to write something. What's selling right now? Okay, I'll write that. I mean, you know, you got to make a living. I, I wouldn't be interested in that, but maybe you'll have a better, better grasp of it. Um, so there you go. That's right, Kyle. Really well done. Kyle's like, Kyle, are you a deep down frustrated on air personality?
4: Uh, Not even a little bit.
1: Not Not even even a little. That is, that's the most honest answer the entire audience is going to hear from anyone in their lives for the entire week. All right. We had a bunch of follow-ups to the Whiskey Thief. (laughs) If you guys remember, our man poured himself a couple top-shelf whiskeys and then asked for a bottle of wine when the couple that were hosting the party were going to bed. A lot of guys chimed in, and I was being nicer about it than I probably was, but We saw some of the emails and most of you guys are right on it. So we'll just leave it at that. But there was another follow-up that Kyle sent us here. And our guy says, thanks for reading my original email about the dude stealing my whiskey. First of all, I I do identify as thick. So thank you for bringing that up. (laughs) Secondly, the panhandle is an awesome place to visit. Nothing like South Florida, but there's a ton of great food here. and The beaches are immaculate. I am from the Midwest originally. So you also nailed that. There was no way they weren't from the Midwest. Like, yeah, I guess you guys just stole a ton of whiskey, but here's some wine. And then because he was writing in the email, like we felt bad. He had nothing to feel about. So on to the story. He has not apologized or even brought up the situation. And I haven't either. My fiance and I have not had another cookout yet because we've been busy, but I'm sure we'll have one soon. The kicker here is the whiskey thief is having his own cookout coming up. Both my fiance and I are invited. Is this a makeup, an apology or just coincidence? It's his first party at his house. His words, not mine. I feel a little weird about the situation still, but I'm most likely going to attend the party, but it's also on a Wednesday night. <laughs> this guy rages. Uh, I've since moved my expensive whiskey to another cabinet. This wasn't a $50 type expensive, more like a $150 bottle, so I'm still a little shook that he took a couple. It happens, I guess. I'll let you know how the cookout goes. Actually, do let us. More often than not, I'm like, nah, we get, you get a second email, and I'm in. I'm into this story. I don't know that he's having this cookout to make up anything no way no Uh, way this guy's all about himself in a pretty apparent dependency on throwing some back so uh yeah i don't i think you guys go and observe like i would be so excited this would be like one of the few times i'd be like i'd want to be in a relationship how excited would you be on the ride over being like what's gonna happen What's this guy going to be like hosting his own thing? And then you could go all-timer where you decide to make a pact that you're the last two people to leave no matter what that he has to ask you to leave. But the thing is, he'll be so excited somebody's staying there and staying up late when he calls in sick to work the next day or doesn't have to because it's just a Zoom for 90 minutes. Um, You know, who knows?
4: I think that guy's a a shoes on your coffee table guy and he'll just be that way forever. (laughs) And he doesn't even get it. And I think that's just how he is. Yeah. Yeah. You should treat him as such.
1: But you're Kyle, playing, would you
4: would you go bananas
1: at the at the party if that were you? Like, would you do a payback revenge attendance thing, or would you
4: just how would you handle it? I don't think I'd be looking through his cabinets because I think that would make me feel a little gross. Probably a little flashbacks coming at me that I don't like to feel. So I probably just I do I do my best. I would do my best. I feel like there's a follow up here. No, there really isn't.
1: All right. Okay. Uh, you want to jump in there?
2: No, I just I feel like it's a chance for you to check this guy out in his natural habitat, right? That's that's the reason to go. I'd want to see how he reacts if he's just as sloppy and weird as his, at his own place. So that's that's you absolutely have to go Um just to, just to scratch that curiosity itch. Yeah,
1: I
0: think I think.
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I would just wouldn't worry about it. I mean, there should be no anxiousness whatsoever about this deal you just go like hey let's let's check this out unless all of a sudden he thinks like you guys are really close and hitting it off you just steal shit from that'd be hilarious if your wife or fiance was like i stole i stole under the table and dreaming (laughs) cd (laughs) (laughs) okay um we had one other here because this this uh this spoke to me here Okay. Escaping bartending. Six three, one eighty five, don't lift. Can split wood all day. Used to be a pretty good steeplechaser. Do you know what steeplechasing is, guys? Like the tops of
4: churches? Probably not. Nope. It's not that. Okay. I've been
1: bartending six years now. So we don't know how old. Did we get an age here. I'll just keep going. Bartending six years. I recently started working at one of the top restaurants in my city. Congrats. I've been routinely making three hundred a night. It's good for a shift. I've had a couple weekend doubles where I've made five to six hundred for context. My mortgage is eleven hundred a month, so this is really good money for where I live. I enjoy bartending. I'm good at making drinks and I'm good with guests. But I'm tired. The late nights, the no weekends, the idiot fucking managers who couldn't cut it as servers, so they fell up into a thirty eight thousand dollar a year salary. Um, I've basically risen as high as I can in this profession and realize it's not uh, still not satisfying. I understand that work is work, and I don't need to find all my life purpose through a job, but I just turned 30. There we go. And I feel like I'm already aging, aging out of the service industry. The problem is nothing else pays uh, dick compared to what I can pull at the bar. I was offered an apprenticeship today with a masonry company. I have no experience and I have no idea if I like it. I just know I like being outside. I don't mind manual labor. I'm only getting this chance because everyone's struggling to find workers right now and I was able to talk them up to $18 an hour. I think I'm going to make it. But I'm an idiot. Am I an idiot for walking away from double that pay just because I'm a bit disgruntled right now? Uh, How did the cats used to sling it with escape the bar life or did they not? What was your plan if the radio thing didn't work out? Thanks for your time. Really appreciate the pot. All right. So when I was done, done, and I had bartended, I got started pretty early because this guy, I don't know. I mean, I I don't want to. It was sort of a messy situation at a local bar and he, he just loved me. And so by the time I was, shoot, I think I was 19. I think I had 19 turned 20 that summer. I wasn't even legal. And I was bartending at like one of the top spots in Martha's Vineyard, which pissed a lot of other people off, but I didn't care, whatever. And then I bartended in college towards the end and then managed a place at 23, which I probably shouldn't have been managing. It got shut down in a raid. It wasn't actually my fault. Um, It was political. And maybe we'll tell that story another day. And then I bartended and then I went home and worked construction framing. And then I went back and bartended again. And then when I was doing the radio show stuff that we were just talking about how broke I was then, I got a a shift at a place in Boston. But I kind of felt like I was done bartending at 26. So I knew the feeling because I was doing it four nights a week. I had kind of a rinse and repeat uh, repeat life, which a lot of us have, but at least I feel like my my rinse and repeat is happening now. It's it's happening with a purpose. So I understand. And look, if you're bartending now, because I want to be totally like some people that like to bartend and that's what they like, like, that's awesome. You found the thing. It's cool. It's social. If you like that social part of it, um, because I, I do know that I could probably be a little guilty or maybe all of us can be guilty of like looking at certain careers and industries and then saying like, oh, man, you'll want to stop doing that where you kind of feel like you're being insulted towards everybody else. But I think it's a fair and reasonable thing to say and in the service industry past a certain age, you're probably going like, do I really want to keep doing this? But if you love it and you want to keep doing it, then good, good for you. Because it's actually also kind of cool when you find some place with some character, an old divey spot, and the guy's been there forever. Or I've been to some places in New Orleans where you know you go in and somebody tells you the history and the guy behind there is the vest and a mustache before the mustaches were cool. All that stuff's really cool. But you clearly are not feeling it because I felt the same thing. I would start to get this awful stomach ache Once I would turn the corner down Maine onto St. Paul in Burlington, Vermont, and I would go down the stairwell and open up this big red door and I would have a pit in my stomach because I was like, I, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. And I didn't think I was going to, but that's hard when you're in the moment and you're feeling that. So that sounds a bit like. Not exactly. It doesn't sound, you know, but I I get the point. And I think it doesn't, you don't have to just be a bartender, but you get the point But the bartending, where you know, people are drunk and they're fucking with you. And I mean, we used to have fights a decent amount. I used to love it at first and I hated it later on as you just get sick of it. All right. You just get sick of it. And for me, I was also still doing it in the town where I went to school. So now you're starting to like, you know, it's like, dude, you still are here. So that's another element to it that you're not talking about. But I get that point. I think a lot of people can uh, relate to that. However, when you talk about the managers who you don't like because they couldn't serve fell up, most often any bar that I've ever worked at, you'd rather be a bartender than a manager anyway because you're making more money than them. So when you're throwing me some of these numbers and you're making, if you're doing 300 a night and say you're doing five, four nights, I'm not going to say five, say four nights, then you're already beating this guy in salary unless we're only talking about you doing a couple nights a week. But it sounds like money isn't really the issue because now you've taken a job for less. This is where I'm a little worried because um, I don't know what, what the purpose is and all that kind of stuff. I feel like you're leaving something that pays twice as much for masonry that, I'll just put it this way, of the labor manual options, or manual labor options, better said, masonry is the Irish of the fight scenes in Braveheart, Okay masonry is fucking brutal my brother did it for a while he still got like (laughs) scars emotionally from you know the crew what that he was working for wasn't great either masonry is so you're just going to be lugging rocks dude for eight plus hours a day so if you're cool with that and you like to do it and you're going to get big forearms and you're going to be able to beat people at arm wrestling and your hands are going to be all gnarled up and you like that, I have all the respect in the world for you. Masons, you don't want to fight them, and you know you just kind of let them do their thing. But it is literally backbreaking work, and you know making a apple teeny may seem real fucking tempting for twice the amount of money per hour after about four weeks of doing that. So I don't know what to tell you on like what your long-term goals should be because yeah, I think if you're bartending for a while, the cash is great. The cash is great. You're constantly asking yourself, okay, where is the long-term play in this? Is it buying my own place? Is it investing in something else? Is it completely getting out of the industry? I admire the outdoors part of it because I too miss the manual part of being outside. and I don't miss being up on ladders and freezing weather and some fucking framer from, you know, New Bedford yelling at me, but I know I've been around enough to watch the Masons work and I just hope you know what you've signed up for. And if you love it, then great. You know what I mean? It's like the end of Office Space where somehow Ron Livingston's character enjoys cleaning up garbage uh, at the end. And he's like, cool, this is awesome. I'm shoveling garbage. You are like, that's awesome because Jennifer Aniston definitely wouldn't be dating you still, but whatever. It's a movie. Um, yeah, so don't be so disgruntled that you just did something where you're going to be way more banged up physically for half the pay. Or maybe you'll love it. Yeah, I don't know. That's the pod for today. Make sure you, uh, Kyle, where can we follow you so we can keep up to date with your
4: your height and weight? Uh, height and weight updates weekly at TomShady300. Tom Shady,
1: and then Steve Cerruti, also producing on the show. You can follow him
2: at? Uh, just at Cerruti, the non night version
1: all right perfect that was easy okay we'll be back next uh, week remember sunday nights every sunday with bill and we'll talk to you next week